0: So we are at the beginning of a series where we're looking at the narrative portions of Scripture. And I've been calling it the tapestry, finding the thread of God's redemption in human history. Because as we read the Scriptures, we see that they are rife with the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're stories of heroic deeds, but also depravity. And all of these stories are recorded in the scriptures, not necessarily to give us examples of how to live, but to showcase the plan of redemption that God has been working. And at times that plan he has been working in spite of human participation. Sometimes some of those those really terrible stories reveal just how bad humanity was acting and God's desire to redeem and reconcile them out of that. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to do the first segment of that where we work through the first six chapters of Genesis. This morning, we turn our attention to the second of the two creation stories in the opening chapters of Genesis. And so if you have Bibles that you want to open and follow along, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2 beginning at verse 4. Now, the two stories I shared this last week, that Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is is one story, and uh, what follows in Genesis 2, 4 and and following are two stories that are different uh, in in some significant ways. Foremost of them is the way in which God is addressed in each story. Last week, we saw the creation structured as a six-day event. God speaking with authority and the universe obeying. The label used of God was the term, the generic term for God, which in Hebrew was Elohim. This creation account was cosmic. It shows his supremacy over all of creation. We looked at how the story is meant to be subversive to the nations around the Hebrew people who had their own myths, their own mythology of how the world came into being. What we're going to find here in Genesis chapter 4 is we go from this cosmic story where God creates sun and moon and all the stars, and we zoom way in to a much more intimate setting. Now, as I read, note the name for God that is used. It isn't just God like we saw last week, but it is the Lord God. Chapter 1, we had the generic label for God, but here we see that label better defined, including the name of God. The name that God provided to Moses at the burning bush, the name Yahweh. Now in English, in your English Bibles, that is typically translated as Lord. And it's usually a capital O with a capital O, uh, excuse me, capital L with a capital O-R-D, but it's like capital but a little smaller. And, and the reason that they use the word Lord is because in the ancient, you know, in, in the ancient uh, uh, Hebrew setting, they did not want to violate the command to take the Lord's name in vain. And so typically, when they would write this, they used the word, or speak it, they would use the word Adonai, which is a generic word for Lord, or like master, sir. And so that's why they, they, the, the kind of English translation of that has been Lord. So keep, keep an eye out for that name of God, and notice some of these similarities and differences from what we read last week. So if you wanna follow along, Genesis chapter two, verses four through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the euphrates the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it and the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone i will make a helper fit for him Now, before we dig into the text, I want to note, if you follow these stories closely, there is some differences between these two stories. The beginning of ours says that je- in verse 5 that there's no bush or plant in the field. And this is around the time that he crafted man. But we see previously that day 3 was the day that vegetation was created. You know, some try to advocate that what we see here in this text is kind of day six zoomed in. I I don't know if I agree with that. This is one of these places where there's not consensus. We don't know with certainty what the Bible means. But I believe that there are differences in these two stories because they're meant to communicate two different things. Genesis 1, as as I shared last week, cosmic. It's more like poetry. It's meant to be subversive to the nations around it. Genesis 2, I think, is meant to be a little bit more like history or narrative. So let's take a little closer look to it. So look first at that opening verse, verse 4. It opens with, these are the generations. Now this is important because this is a formula that you find if you read through the book of Genesis time and time again. I think it occurs 10, there's two different counts, 10 times or 11 times. These are the generations of fill in the blank. It's the first of these, these headings in the book. And it's actually where we get the name Genesis of our English versions, of our English translations. The the Hebrew word for Genesis in the Greek translation is something called the Septuagint. We don't need to get into that history. But they translated that word in the Greek, Genesis, which is where that comes. So this is is where the book is first named. And there's a really interesting structure in this verse. It's called a chiasm. Think about it like a, a chasm, like a pyramid kind of step or, or, or like a books with bookends that kind of move their way in. Right? Each step has a partner on the other side. Look at it, follow it. These are the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see how it kind of walks us up and back down. And the purpose of this verse is to serve as a transitional statement from what we read in that first chapter to everything else that follows in this book. So drop down to verse 7, the creation of man. The word used of this action is formed. It's a term that is reminiscent of a potter forming clay, like we sang about this morning. I mean, take a moment and think about the differences between what this states and what we read in the last chapter. In chapter one, God creates through this powerful authority of his voice. He speaks and it happens. But here, God gets his hands dirty. I mean, quite, quite literally, he's working with the dirt, the dust of the ground to create humanity. In college, one of my favorite bands was a a band called Five Iron Frenzy. They were Christian Ska. And they have a song called Every New Day. It's a beautiful song. And, And they really, I think, they have some poetry that just gets at this, describes this experience. They say, through distant deeps and skies, behind infinity, below the face of heaven, he stoops to create me. God in his infinite nature, his immense grandeur, this passage passage evokes an image of him kind of hunching over his creation, meticulously forming man out of the ground. If we were reading in the Hebrew, we would see immediately a relationship between man and the ground, right? The Hebrew word here for man is Adam that we see. It's where his name comes from. In Hebrew, the word for ground is Adama. Man comes out of the ground. God takes this clump of dirt and breathes life in him. And man has life. God then places this man in this garden that he plants. A royal paradise for the man. Look down at verses 9 and following. You have once again the language of abundance. Copious trees planted. Pleasant to the senses filled with food. You would would found a city strategically next to a body of water, but this garden is at the intersection of four life-giving waters. The lands that surround it are rich with good minerals and precious stones. We saw this theme last week where creation was teeming, was swarming, but once again we see that God creates plentiful spaces out of his own abundance. Let's jump down to verses 15 and 16. This is, I think, the the key theme. There's so much in this chapter, but this is the key theme that I want us to walk home with this week. Man is instructed to work the garden and keep it. That's how our English is translated. The very first command that God gives to man after his creation is work. Humanity was tasked with working before the fall before sin entered the world and jacked everything up, work was a part of God's plan for humanity. Now, what this means for us is that work is not and should not be a necessary evil. It is not a byproduct of the fall, work itself. Now, true, toil in work, and we're going to see this next week, toil is a consequence of sin, but work is a good thing created by God for us. And I know there are some of us that need to hear that. That work can be a holy calling from God. But let's take that concept one step further. All right, being separated from the culture in which this was first written, it would be easy for us to miss miss this. But this whole whole encounter is meant to give the impression that the garden is a holy place. The language reflects the Garden of Eden as a temple a divine sanctuary. And I mentioned last week that when we read this section of Adam and Eve, we're meant to be understood as priests for this area, priests of this space. And the Hebrew words that God uses are that man, which again, by definition, we'll get in a minute, humanity, are to work, abad, or avad would probably be a better pronunciation, and keep shamar. Now, I want to read from you a section of the the Torah, the Pentateuch, from Numbers, Numbers 3-7. This section describes the responsibilities, it's part of the law that describes the responsibilities of the Levites, right? The Levites were one of the tribe of Israel that were responsible for the priestly and the logistical roles of the worship of God. Numbers 3-7 says this, they, the Levites, shall keep guard, shamar, over him, over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister avad at the tabernacle. These words were used of Adam's work, right? Avad and shamar in Genesis 2 are the same root words used in the description of the priestly duties in the law. And so I think what we can connect, in connecting the dots here, we see that work is not only not a byproduct of the fall, But work has the potential to be an act of worship towards our creator. There are other places in scriptures as well where that Hebrew word in particular, avad, work, is translated as worship. So Adam, and by relationship also Eve, had the responsibility to be the representatives of God in this temple, this garden, this paradise. They were to protect it. They were to work faithfully to maintain it as an act of worship for their creator. Now this helps us understand the command that comes next, that they were not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot of ofs, a lot of those statements in there. Now as a modern reader, we might look at this prohibition and be like, why? It seems so arbitrary. And we'll look again, we'll look a little bit more at that next week. But keeping this metaphor of the garden as a temple I want to again connect some dots. Think about the temple in Israel. There was a section that was off limits the Holy of Holies. It could only be entered into one day a year by the high priest after he made certain sacrifices. It was the place where God physically resided within. To go in there in an unworthy state was to court death. Now this isn't a direct one-to-one correspondence because we see in the next chapter, we'll see that God walked, you know, he, he, he spent time. There was that intimate relationship where God was physically manifest with Adam and Eve. But I, I, connect, I, I want us to see that the, the understanding of prohibitions in a temple space should not be, um, not seem absurd to us. Now if we continue, as we continue to read the text, we should experience the textual equivalent of a car pileup when we read verse 18. For the entirety of Genesis 1, we saw about the goodness of creation. God created the foundational, you know, biomes, created life. He was constantly declaring that it was good. And the progression culminates in chapter 1, verse 31, where God looks back after creating humanity sees everything that was made, and it was very good. But here, in verse 18, we slam on the brakes because we read that in this paradise that God has been forming, something is not good. It is not good for Adam to be alone. And what follows next is the creation of Eve, although that name is not given to her until the next chapter, which is significant, but we'll touch on that next week. Now, in this section, I am highly indebted to Tim and Kathy Keller for their book, The Meaning of Marriage. It's a book I recommend. Uh, We've been going, we just finished it up this week, this past Friday, Uh, Rachel and Ty, anyone that I do premarital counseling with, I recommend that book. But in one of the chapters, a chapter that was predominantly written by Kathy, they engage this concept of God creating Eve, making a helper fit or a helper suitable for Adam. Now, some translations are I've heard this figure referred to as a helpmate. Uh, this is a little embarrassing, but, you know, in my younger years, when I was, you know, r- would read this, I would think, like, this kind of sounds like the job description for Adam's administrative assistant. I don't know if you've ever had kind of that thought in just reading the English text. You know, like, Adam, it just seems by the text, like, he's doing all the real important work, and he just needs someone to stand behind him, give him some support. just someone who's helper. Now, some of you may experience ramifications of this perspective. You know, no one would outright say that Eve was a second-class citizen, but pragmatically, that seems to be how things worked a lot of times, and again, the ways, the churches that I was in at that time. But the interesting thing is the Hebrew word that is used for helper is a word heir. And what's interesting about this word is that in the Old Testament, more often than not, the vast majority of times that this word is used of a helper, it defines God Himself. It's a word that often defines or is used in in ways like uh, sending reinforcements, without which, without those reinforcements, the battle would be lost. Right, Woman is not there to do Adam's laundry and cook his meals, but to engage with him in the priestly duties, in the temple that God made. She is a crucial part to the plan that God has for humanity in working with him, spreading his glory across the lengths of the world. This is language of an equal, of a co-laborer with Adam. When the chapter closes with, with some more poetry, Adam you know, kind of professes his love to Eve, calls her woman in Hebrews isha, which comes from man, ish in Hebrew. Again, you can see there's a lot of these very intentional language connections. But the final verse, I just want to leave you with this final verse before we get to application, is it says that they were completely vulnerable with one another. They were naked and experienced no shame. And this is going to set us up for next week because that word, Hebrew word naked, sounds very similar, very similar to the word crafty that is used to describe the ser- serpent in the next chapter. So again, I think that the author is, is intentionally creating, weaving a story for us. So let's take a moment and try to bring this text home for us. In the last two weeks, we saw the creation of the world, but also the role and responsibility for mankind. Genesis 1 focuses on the regal status of humanity. Man and woman were created in the image of God, the likeness of God, and therefore they were distinct from the rest of creation. They were able to be representatives for God to the world. In Genesis 2, we focus a little bit more on their priestly status. Representing God looks like working the garden and keeping it. Remember those words used of the Levites later in the Torah. Now, what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about is the place of work in our lives. Because from this narrative, we see the foundational design that work was good. But I think this is a far cry from the cultural understanding that many of us experience, where we don't think of ourselves as the master of work, but we've been beholden to it. We work at breakneck speed at the expense of relationships, at the expense of our health, just to make a bit more money so that we can afford the things that we desire. We kind of slog through the week stating slogans like, I'm just working for the weekend, or TGIF, thank God it's Friday. In many ways, we have this perspective that work is a necessary evil that just lets us enjoy life the way that we want to. And I know work is toilsome, it is futile, At times as a result of the fall but I think our society needs to reinvigorate the goodness of work from God now before I continue I think it's really important to define what I mean when I say work because when I say work most of us probably picture our jobs we think of the stuff that we get paid for but biblically speaking work is much more than what we do to collect a paycheck for example stay-at-home moms They don't get paid for their work. But we all know that they work harder than anyone else. Someone who is retired, living off of their savings, they continue to work in various ways. For the last five years, I have volunteered as a coach for the Woodland Hills Youth Soccer Association. I have never received any compensation for it, but it was part of the work that I believe God called me to. Remember the role of Adam and Eve. They were to be priests, the temple guardians for God. They had the responsibility of tending the earth, participating in its flourishing. Now, while we've been expelled from the Garden of Eden, the truth of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is that it established God's kingdom here on the earth. We live in the time between times where the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet here in all of its fullness. And so I believe that to consider work is to consider how we are partnering with God in the ways in which he is bringing restoration and bringing reconciliation to his creation whatever we do I would argue is ministry in my college setting I was involved in a in a uh, church ministry and the way in which they communicated ministry like if you want if you were serious about Jesus you went to become staff on that organization, you went to be a missionary overseas, you trained to be a pastor, that was like the calling that God put on your life. That was ministry. But what I've come to learn in reading the scriptures is that, that, that I, I'm sure you could say I'm a minister, what I like to call myself is I'm a professional Christian, all right? I get paid to be a Christian. We all do ministry. How we work for the Army Corps of Engineers, how we work if we're a teacher, a social worker, a student, all of that is part of ministry. Maybe you work in customer service, right? You can be that there those reinforcements for folks that are having problems and treat them with kindness, even if they may not deserve it. I just, as an aside, I, I uh, called Verizon. My, my bill went up this past month and I wasn't happy about it. And, you know, I looked at my bills comparing and I was like, oh, there's this new charge. I don't understand what it is. It says like E911 surcharge. And so I called this woman, I called Verizon, and a woman answered the phone, and I was like, I don't understand why my bill went up, because it it, it showed up on all four of my lines. And she, you know, gives me some line as to why this, uh, this was, and I was like, no, you're wrong. I was like, I've been looking into my bills, that's not an accurate reflection of what this is. And she kept kind of giving me this line of, you know, these surcharges, and this is what's going up, because it was like a buck sixty-five for each line, and the E nine one one surcharge was a buck sixty-five, so I was like, clearly this is it. And I tried to keep escalating. I'm going to talk to your supervisor, and you know I was on hold forever. Uh, I never did talk to a supervisor. She kept checking in, and I was like, I, I was basically like, you're full of crap, lady. I, I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking at the moment. And so it, you know, one of those prolonged holds, I was like flipping through again, and I looked at my previous month's bill, and I was like, huh. There's actually an E911 surcharge in my previous bill too. Well, this is awkward, and oh, this like admin cost increased from one something to three something, which just happens to be a buck sixty-five. So I wait on the phone for her to come back again. At this point, it's like I'm resolved. It was my mistake because I just I told her I was like I need to ap- I owe you an apology. I was like I was completely wrong and I was telling you uh, that you were wrong, and anyway, uh, right, she was, she was, I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but that was ministry, right? That was pursuing reconciliation to the point where I'm, again, I didn't get like angry and yelling, but I'm clearly escalating things needlessly, but she maintained her composure, right? She, she took the, the abuse, again, I don't know that it was abuse necessarily, but she took the, the unkindness that I was giving, and did not repay it back to me, even though I, I deserved it, because I was the one that was wrong in the end. Maybe you are a teacher, and you're helping to cultivate not only sharp minds, but empowering the emotional development of tomorrow's leaders. Maybe you're a healthcare worker. Right? You can have a vision for your job, where you're pursuing physical healing as a tangible expression of this total shalom, this healing that we'll experience in God's kingdom an engineer that can work in their firm in a way that doesn't plunder the resources of the earth but seeks to bring sustainability. This is why we have this, this time tomorrow, why Abby, you know, I invited her to share a little bit about her work. Because it's all ministry. It's all a calling, connecting the dots of what God wants to do in us, connecting Faith Sunday to what we do Monday or Tuesday or whatever day of the week it is. And so as we close this week, I want you to focus on these reflection questions for the glory of God's kingdom. Even if you don't have a job that you get paid for, identify places where you are at work, whether you're volunteering, whether you're parenting, serving others, gardening. Let us rediscover a robust perspective of the goodness of work as designed by the creator. So Craig, if you wanna put some of those questions on the screen, here's the first one. What are a few examples of your work where you see your partnership with God and his kingdom? Where do you see that alignment with what you are doing, whether it be for a paycheck or not, and what God wants to do in this world? Now here's the next one, this is like the opposite. Can you identify a few places where your work is not restorative but is actually bringing desolation? Because there's a lot of places that we just kind of join with that cultural, uh, you know, marching on. Do whatever we want. And sometimes some things that we do don't bring consolation, but bring desolation. So let's take an honest inventory of that. And if, if we find that, how should that work change? And then lastly, to meditate, focus. Sit, sit with First Peter 2.9. It's not on there because I did not have room, but I'll read it for you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Know that you have been chosen by God to join in his restorative work on the creation to make his glory and name known. Join me in prayer. Lord, as we engage our work this week, as we go to our nine-to-five jobs as we put our kids to bed as we hang out with our friends in the neighborhood as we cut the grass lord as we do all of this may we have this mindset this framework of the kingdom that you've placed here that you've established here and may we see the work that we are doing joining with you in bringing that to bear more fully and more fruitfully, Lord. As we go through our weeks, if there are places where we say, "Man, I'm participating with a system that is harming your kingdom," may we may we honestly inventory that, and may you provide avenues for us to think differently about it, Lord. Whether it be the amount of trash that we dispose of, our wasteful attitudes the greed that we have that utilizes people as, uh, as parts or cogs in a machine as opposed to persons. Lord, whatever it might be, help us to see ways that we can live differently for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.